suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. We're up to episode 206 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. I am Trevor, your host, also known as the Iron Fist. With me, as always, is Scott, also known as the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Paul. G'day, Alison. How are you all? Yes. Edward. And me, the Velvet Glove, uh, not the Velvet Glove, the uh, 12th so-called 12th man. man. <laughs> Getting confused already. Hi, everyone. Paul, the 12th Hi, man Alison. Welcome to the podcast. Thank and you. And yes, with us as well is Alison from the Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools, who's coming to talk to us about her organisation and her petition and the state of play of religious instruction and chaplaincy and all things like that in Queensland State Schools at the moment. Welcome aboard, Alison. Thank you. Thanks for having me, fellas. Mm. This is actually the second time that well, you were actually speaking on the interview I did two years ago, or you couldn't because your voice had gone at that point? I was speaking very little because my voice was cracking up. I'd had a, a nasty cold. So uh, Julia, who's also with um, Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools, had to do most of the talking. Mm. So I got out of that fairly lightly. Mm. So, okay. But yeah. I don't have her here tonight. No, you're so on your own. I'm on my own. Yeah. So. <laughs> And, and, and believe it or not, dear listener, Alison is one of our patrons. So thank you for that as well, Alison. So great. You're welcome. Mm. Well, uh, let's talk about Queensland State Schools and religious instruction classes and where we're at, where we're at, at the moment. So if people, you know, if, you, if you're at a dinner party, Alison, do you talk about this sort of stuff at dinner parties and, and get-togethers with other people or do you keep quiet? No, I talk about it every opportunity I can. <laughs> yep. And when somebody says to you, what, what do you mean our state schools aren't secular? What do you say? I say, where do I start? How long have you got? Yeah. Um, yep. And start from there, basically. Mm. Well, let's start with religious instruction classes. So okay. at the moment it's legal for religious groups to, um, well, you tell me how it works, Alison. Okay, well, um, our school, our schools in Queensland, our state schools were secular up until 1910. Um, when they were set up in 1865, the um, religious groups wanted a religiously neutral environment to send their children to school because they'd previously been sending their children to um, private religiously run schools. So... They wanted state schools to be secular and they'd be free to send their, their children and they were mainly um, Catholic, Protestant um, Christians back then. I think um, Christians were about 84% of the Queensland population mm. um, and they families could take care of their own Sunday school and church and faith formation in their own time. So when the kids were sent to school, the school was religiously neutral um, this this sounds like it came from an enlightened sort of base where, um, but perhaps there was an element of selfishness in it in that they didn't trust each other to some extent, the Catholics and the Protestants. So rather than have any, 
religion, their preference was to have no religion. That way the Catholics could be sure that their Catholic kids wouldn't be taught some sort of Protestant uh, mm. sort of doctrine and, and vice versa. So, I think you've hit the nail yeah. on the head there, Trevor, that, mm. yes, that's exactly what they what they wanted and it worked beautifully. Everybody was happy. Um, mm. uh, kids didn't care who they played with, what religion of the, you know, their mates were at school. They were all just there at a, at a public school together to be educated by their teachers. So what happened in 1910? Well, in 1910 um, that all changed and the legislate the Education Act at the time was changed to allow um, two things, primarily Bible readings by teachers to the class children in class time and secondly um, the right of entry to religious organisations to come in and provide instruction in the religion of the person coming in to the children whose parents had identified them as of that denomination. So you'd have a, a Catholic um, instructor and it would be the local priest would come into to schools and the Catholic children would receive instruction from that one and then you'd have your, your Protestant ministers come in and, and give religious instruction. So the children were divided along re- religious lines and the instruction is is similar to what they would have got at a Sunday school, how to follow a religion. And that was um, the children were divided for the first time in their classrooms And what was result. the trigger for it happening then when they'd been going for 30 years or something without it? Why then? One very determined Anglican man. Um, his name was David Garland. He uh, was an Anglican minister and he came from the United Kingdom and he came to Queensland. He was an incredibly um, dedicated man. He, um, he was the architect of Anzac Day in Australia. Right. Um, there's memorials all over Brisbane to him. He's got a fan club on Facebook. They they um, love all sorts of things to do with Canon Garland. Um, but one of the things that he did um, was to push to allow um, this right of entry by religious instruction um, people and also to have Bible reading by school. So he had a passion to bring Christianity into state schools. So it was basically one fanatical man on a mission, lobbied Absolutely. the government and got it done. He did. Mm. And I've um, I've read all the old Hansards of Parliament, you know, back around that time to see what they said about this. There was actually a referendum, um, although these days we would call it a non-binding plebiscite, mm. but it was um, a non-compulsory referendum. And the from both sides of parliament, they didn't think that the people would vote for these two things, the religious instruction and the, and the Bible in schools. Um, the Labor Party didn't uh, campaign strongly against it. They just said, oh, don't vote for it. And I think the um, the uh, Conservative Party, you know, weren't too fussed about it either. Mm-hmm. But they sort of went through the steps. They let it happen. And um, back then, 
you there was a lot less people enrolled to vote, um, but out the people that voted on the day, out of the um, out of the people that were on the uh, enrolment register, twenty six percent voted for it. But mm. that was a majority of people who actually bothered to vote, mm. um, and um, it was just pushed through Parliament then, they felt that, well, the majority of people who actually voted for it, that's what they wanted. So they enacted legislation and there was a lot of angst from both sides of Parliament about doing that. And one of the one of the scary things was that um, back in 1910 to enable that uh, change in the Education Act, they had to remove the word secular mm. where it appeared throughout our Education Act. Hmm. So we currently do not have the word secular in our act. That's okay because Scott Morrison says this is not a secular country anyway. Apparently, he's well. cool with that. <laughs> you know, this is um, this is a little bit reminiscent of the nun who was in Goulburn with the uh, with the toilet block. Mm-hmm. I think Mother Celeste, I think is her name was, where basically one fanatical person stood their ground, refused to give in, and changed the course of history. So Absolutely. she insisted that she was going to close down all of the schools in Goulburn. Mm-hmm. And as a result, the federal government caved in, provided some they money, did. and that was the thin edge of the wedge mm. to the billion-dollar empire yes. that, that we're stuck with now. So, well, prior, just, prior to the Goulburn, there was no not, public, not public funding of, of, um, of private schools. schools. No, there yeah. wasn't a cent. And I often wonder, the government would clearly be better off if they'd called a bluff, say, right, oh, we're going to compulsorily acquire mm. those schools. You've got to remove all those religious nonsense that's in the schools because mm. they're going to become secular state schools. Mm. It also yeah. shows what happens when a plebiscite is voluntary and there is one faction of highly motivated people who want something to go through. Yes. And they are the ones who turn out and vote and encourage like-minded people to turn out and vote. Yes. And those who are apathetic or don't have a view on it stay at home and lose it. Exactly. It makes me wonder what would happen if you had a vote now on that exact question. Mm. I think it would fail this time. Yes, I do. Yeah. I mean, I often think um, if we didn't have religious instruction and in state schools now and somebody came along and proposed that we do, everyone would just go, what the? Mm. Exactly. It wouldn't pass the, the pub test. Yeah, it's always the case, though, that once something's in place, then it's so much harder to remove it. So just thinking in the recent election with the with the dividend refund with the retirees and, you know, it was a scheme that people have and when you take it away, the yeah. people who, are, who have the benefit uh, just arc up, of course, and mm-hmm. saying, well, no, I want to keep it. And those who will benefit in the long run but don't see that don't really mm-hmm. have the same motivation. So, yeah, when you take something off somebody... They complain, complain yeah. bitterly and loudly and yeah. and have a lot more sway. So, okay, so you've opened up a couple of lines there. Uh, the easiest one to deal with or the quickest perhaps might be the Bible reading by the, the actual employed Department of Education teachers. How, mm. how much Bible reading, if any, happens by teachers these days? I don't know of any. Right. Um, so it's discretionary on on the principal of each school. It's still in the act. It's never been taken out. Yep. Um, but I don't actually believe there's any. I think that a long time ago teachers went, uh, no, mm-hmm. we're not going to do this, mm-hmm. and and it was stopped. But the way that it was it was done was the department actually produced some. Um, 
sections of the Bible, some Bible readings, so they weren't just a, a teacher opening up at their particular um, at a particular page of the Bible. It was right. actually um, official readings at the department had said these will be our our readings. Okay, but my reading of the Act was that they could pretty much do what they like, though. I, I didn't see that in the Act, but you're saying it's more regimented, more restricted. Well, it's up to the principal to determine if that's going on in their school. They're mm. the ultimate um, the ultimate person. And I don't think the um, Queensland Teachers Union would be too keen if any of their teachers were asked to, to read the Bible. And the mm. legislation is specific to the Bible. Yep. Okay. Mm, it doesn't include any other religious text. It's obviously a Christian reference alone. So realistically, not too much to worry about on that score. Uh, let's get rid of it. But at the moment, current practice is that it's not really being utilised. Correct. Mm. But it's still in there. Mm. And um, we don't have the word secular in the Act. Mm. The um, So that does have some, some consequences um, in respect to other things. So yep. there's a, um, uh, an organisation put secular back in the Act uh, run by the famous Ron Williams of the High Court Chaplaincy Challenge. He's, he wants to get secular back in the Act. Which means removing the special religious instruction classes from the well, Act then? it could be done separately. So yeah. they're two sp- separate things within the same section um, and they're independent of each other. Right. So the Bible readings could be returned, um, could be removed, and then separately religious instruction could be dealt with. Right. So I don't know. I mean, if you got secular back in the Act, but there's still special religious instruction classes. Uh, well, that doesn't, that wouldn't make me happy. No. No, yeah. I, want, I, I, I mm. want to see both, both mm. gone. So how many, okay, so the special religious instruction classes, this is where... Uh, religious groups are organising for a volunteer to come into the school and conduct a class with children of that particular denomination who have signed up to the process. Um, I know you've had issues with the enrolment forms and, and sort of consenting to that procedure. So what's the state of play at the moment? If I've got a youngster about to go into a school what will I see in terms of enrolment? Will I be automatically, if I if my kids ticked off as a Catholic, will they automatically be put into one of the Catholic scripture lessons if there is one in the school? How, how does it work? Okay, so um, there's d- department Department of Education has quite a detailed policy on um, how principals are supposed to manage religious instruction. So the enrolment, you'll get an enrolment form and there is a religious instruction question on that enrolment form and it was re- it was changed a couple of years ago um, following the Connect review that um, my school was involved in. And so it now has a yes-no question. Do you want your child to do religious instruction? You can tick yes or no. The question is mandatory, but no one can force you to to answer it. Um, and if you do, if you tick yes, then you write down what religion you want that instruction to be in. So if if you write down, say, um, Catholic, then if there is um, Catholic instruction offered at the school, either as what's called a single faith instruction or the Catholic Church has 
signed up to what's called a cooperative arrangement with other Christian denominations, that's called a cooperative arrangement. So if either of those exist at the school, um, and obviously it, it will be either or because if there's a is a single faith Catholic, they also won't be part of the cooperative. Sure. Um, but most commonly um, cooperative arrangements are, are the go in, in Queensland. So if you've identified your child as one of the denominations of that uh, cooperative arrangement, then your child will be allocated to that um, religious instruction class. Mm. Now, uh, you won't be told by the school what the denomination of the volunteer is. Um, you should be told by the school if they're complying with policy what the name of the program is and provided with some information on the program. But um, as to the level of compliance with policy, that would be hit and miss depending on what school you go to. Um, you might have one school that's got excellent compliance and the one just up the road may have poor compliance. Mm. Um, you know, we've been looking at compliance for years and we're still seeing um, principals tell children, tell parents it's part of the curriculum or most people attend and using coercive language or language that's uh, not neutral about religious instruction. Um, so it's a bit bit potluck as to what you might get, but the the enrolment form um, is consistent everywhere because they all have to use the new enrolment form. So you do get a yes-no um, question on, you know, whether you want your child to do religious instruction. Now, if you put down a religion that is not um, offered at the school, then your child should be put into other instruction, which is basically whatever the principal determines um, your child should do during that time. Yeah. So how many um, minutes a week are we talking about? For So legislation says um, up to an hour a week. Mm. Um, and, and while the kids are doing that, what are, what are the other kids doing? Okay. Well, again, that's hit and miss. Mm. So because it's up to the, the principal, what is clear though is uh, policy and not legislation, but policy prohibits the non-participants from continuing with their curriculum work. Yep which is a real problem. Um, contrast that with something like instrumental music. So my child takes her clarinet and leaves her classroom when instrumental music is on with about seven or eight kids. The rest of the class just keeps going with whatever work they were doing. Yet when the religious instruction kids leave her classroom and there's about seven or eight that do it in her class, um, to go off to another classroom to do the religion, those kids that are left in her class are not allowed by department policy to continue with their work. Um, <coughs> you know, that's there is no uh, instrumental music privilege, but there certainly is religious privilege. I seem to recall horror stories where, in a particular class, you know, maybe the majority would go to a religious instruction class and get lollies and goodies and fun stuff to do and the other kids would be left, you know, not quite in the broom closet um, or sent around to pick up uh, litter but, you know, pretty boring experience and the, those kids would almost ask to be in the religious instruction class because they were given very boring options. And My in son comparison. did exactly that right. uh, when he was in elementary school. Uh, we we asked for our kids to be left out, but they 
they just asked to go back because it was so boring not being with their friends. You know? mm. Mm. Look, those examples you gave, um, Trevor, about the broom closet and the picking up litter, we've actually heard real-life examples of those. So mm. so those sorts of things um, have certainly happened. Um, we, we, we think that things are improving because the department is cracking down on compliance with policy. Um, if we're notified by parents that this is what's happening in the school and it's and it's in a breach of policy, um, we'll tell the department and the department will say, you've got to comply with policy. Um, they can't provide any lollies anymore. Um, mm. that's, ag- <laughs> that's against the, um, the red light food provision the policy in the department's requirements. The schools can only have so many days when they're allowed red things and if mm. religious instruction people are giving them lollies, then um, A, it's not appropriate because only some of the kids are getting them and B, it's, you know, it's got to be, that's a red light food. Mm. So they can't, they, they can't, they're not supposed to do that anymore. Having said that, I did hear from a parent last week that their non-RI participating child was upset because the other kids came back with lollies. Um, so there's there's been all sorts of, of problems, um, but things are improving and uh, in terms of participation, as more and more parents are understanding exactly what religious instruction is and that um, they're making a more informed decision about their child's participation, numbers are actually dropping. Mm. So, Got any stats on participation? Oh, funny you ask. Oh. I do have some stats. So... Um, Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools did an RTI application, and we just got the results last week. So you're the first, the oh, first people to share them with. Right. It's, it's an absolute <laughs> scoop. So, um, as at a week ago, when they pulled this data off the One School database, which is the central centralised database of the Department of Education. All the primary for the primary schools and the P to twelve schools because they're the ones that will have religious instruction. Yep. There's very little religious instruction in high schools, um, so it's mainly primary schools where where the volunteers wish to go in. Mm-hmm. So looking at that, looking at the stats for the schools where religious instruction mainly is, which is primary schools. Yep. The um da- the Best depart- the best data the Department of Education has uh, shows that roughly 34% of students Queensland-wide in primary schools have permission recorded on that centralised database to participate in, in religious instruction of any religion. Yep. So um, most of those are probably Christian would be Christian denominations, but they would also include, you know, Baha'i, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, Sikhism, and quite a few of the Christian denominations that don't normally participate mm. in religious instruction. So, if you look, if you look at that figure, you need to take at least a couple of percentage off for all of those other ones, those minority um, mm. non-Christian religions. So. So, surprisingly, you would think that um, you may think that per- permission would be higher, but statewide it's only about thirty-four mm. um, percent. The we 
talked about the new enrolment form. Um, so it's a couple of years old now. This is the second year they've been able to collect data. So every new enrolment, which would be all your preps plus any other student that comes to a new Queensland school, the um, the data is that 41% of parents said yes to RI. And again, that includes any possible religion. So that's really solid data because it's... So what's the difference between the 34% and the 41%? So, so the 34% is what the current, the current permissions are recorded statewide of those primary schools, um, bearing in mind that there are kids that have been at primary schools for many years. Ah, oh, right, okay. So whether they were properly recorded at the time they were put onto the system. Um, so does that mean it's an increase? Well, it's a different, it's a different figure. It's a different, right. if it's, a, it's a different piece of data with different parameters around it. So I don't think you can look at it as an increase. Just have to say current data shows that 34% of all current enrolments in those schools have permission to attend RI. But if mm. you're looking at even a very specific piece of data, which is just the new enrolment form, mm -hmm. um, which has only been out for two years. Um, it it shows that there's forty only forty one percent of parents said yes. Okay, and to has, RI. has the new enrolment form got that paragraph you were talking about earlier about a sort of a soft warning that this is not a, a no? Board's, okay. It ha it has no information right. about. It's just yes and no to, to religious instruction. Hmm. Uh, schools, under policy, schools are supposed to provide parents with information on the um, RI, that what's offered, the religions that are signed up to it, lesson aims of the programs themselves um, at enrolment. So parents, whether parents are also receiving that at the same time they're ticking yes or no is, again, hit and miss. Hmm. So... so I can remember speaking to a lady from the Uniting Church who was basically saying, well, we don't have the resources to provide volunteers to be doing this sort of thing in state schools. And and they were, had a very low-key approach to it. And, and it, it's you were sort of talking about these cooperative arrangements where the religious groups agree to have one person go in and sort of look after all the Christian kids and give them a broad-based sort of Christian teaching what what sort of uh groups are providing the volunteers I've, I've got a sense it's more the evangelical type but correct me if i'm wrong no your, your your sense is is um is correct um what i see happening is that the more evangelical and they're often the non-denominational churches um see schools as mission fields Mm. and the, they might not have right of entry themselves because there's no children at the school that have identified to the school as being of that particular non-denominational church. Um, but they go around to the local ministers of all your mainstream denomination churches and says, please sign up to a cooperative arrangement for such and such state school. Um, we can provide most of the volunteers, but you're also welcome to provide volunteers if you can. So when you said one volunteer, there's there's likely to be more. Mm. I mean, it, it and the number of volunteers that um, are able to go into the school will determine how many year levels are offered RI mm. and, um, you know, 
So some schools might offer from year one to year six. Preps are not allowed to have RI by law. Um, some schools might have first semester, might offer year four, second semester might offer year five. That's solely dependent on the number of people that can go in. And you might get a mix of, of volunteers from um, those cooperative arrangement sign-ups. Um, mm. But often there's definitely an evangelical interest in Are they paid at all, these people typically, or are they purely volunteers? Um, I think I've I've heard of some groups offering payment, Hmm. um, but on the whole I think that they're unpaid volunteers basically with a blue card, a working with children check, Hmm. and a letter from their local minister or pastor saying that, yes, they can go into the school on behalf of that church. We told a story last week, I think, of New South Wales where the volunteers go in and the principal can't ask for proof of the sort of blue card equivalent. Or, But here in Queensland, at least our principals can a- insist absolutely. on saying... Yeah, well, our uh, principals are obliged mm. under the policy mm. to um, cite those working with children checks and keep the, keep the dates of expiry and... Um, all of that. So in that respect, yes, we do have uh, one child safety factor um, above New South Wales, yes. That's the one silver lining you've painted in a very dark cloud so far, Alison. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Okay. So uh, your group has been active for many years trying to lobby the government. Yes. Basically, and you've dealt with various different education ministers as they come and go. Yes. And you've just had a meeting with some bureaucrats in the department just recently, just sort of rekindling your, well, not rekindling, but connecting with them and telling them who you are. And you got a fair response from them? Look, we had a meeting yesterday Mm. with the new um, Director General, Tony Cook of Mm. the Department of Education. We hadn't met with him before. We had met with the previous Director General, Jim Waterston. So, yes, so that was a good opportunity to um, meet and he, he listened to us. We spent about an hour, um, an hour and a half and, um, you know, he certainly took on board what, what we had to say and, and I can't really reveal the details of that meeting but um, we came away, you know, um, thinking that we'd been listened to. Mm. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. He had... Um, I uh, already been briefed on my petition, which we yes, haven't actually about spoken yes. about so yet. You've, so you've, you've got a petition up and running. Tell us about I that. I have got a petition up and running. Mm. So it's in response to feed overwhelming feedback that we hear from parents, um, and also if there's any article on in digital form um, about religious instruction in schools, when you look at the comments, they're overwhelming people overwhelmingly people are saying kids in state schools should be taught about all the different religions. Um, that seems to be the, uh, the big call for what should happen in state schools. So we listened to that and the, the purpose of my um, petition is that it's time to for the Parliament to review this 1910 legislation that brought in religious instruction and to modernise the way religion is presented in state schools if if it's to be in state schools at all. So if I can just read a little bit sure. of it. 
Yeah. So in our increasingly diverse society, the way religion is presented in state schools should be modernised so all children are educated by classroom teachers from a departmentally approved curriculum about major world religions and non-religious views rather than the current practice of segregating children by religion to receive faith instruction from volunteers largely without teaching experience or qualifications. As parents are free to attend to their children's faith development in their own time, state school time must be used to present religion in an educational, respectful and inclusive manner. So that's just a a, a part of it. Mm. Um, I think it's a clever tactic that you have said, rather than just let's get rid of religion, you've said uh, let's get rid of the religious indoctrination and go for a religious education to sort of yes. soften the blow. I think that's a good tactic myself. Mm. And I think that that's, that's what and, people And a good want. thing to do. Yes. I think it's a, I think mm. it's a good thing to do. Mm. Um, you know, we, we live in a multicultural world. We live with religious extreme, extremism. What better way to address fear and intolerance than by educating our children starting from a young age about the different religions in the world and what their basic beliefs are, what their cultures are, what their celebrations are. Um, ironically, this stuff is taught in Catholic schools, mm. in Catholic primary schools as well as their own Catholic religion. Um, I think it's an embarrassment to state school education that you know, Catholic schools can teach comparative religion, but state schools can't. Mm. Yeah, my nieces were all educated in Catholic schools and they said exactly that, that they learned about all the religions mm. and they learned that at a Catholic school. So Yes, and well done to the Catholic schools for, for doing that. Mm. Um, so, you know, we're calling on the state government to um, conduct a parliamentary review into the religious instruction provisions in the Education Act. Mm. And we hope that Parliament listens to us. Um, So my petition went live uh, late Friday afternoon and last time I looked we had 1,025 signatories Mm. to it. So obviously the more signatories we get in support of calling for a review to modernise religious instruction... um, the more Parliament will listen to us. Yeah, there's there's a link in the show notes, dear listener, so you can click on that. It'll take you to the to the petition, and it takes a, about sixty seconds to fill it in and and click the submit button. It just doesn't take long at all. It's the easiest thing you can do. So hmm. uh, go ahead and do that if you're living in Queensland. Yes. So residents of Queensland um, are allowed to sign a Queensland petition. It doesn't you don't have to be an Australian citizen. And you don't even have to be 18. If you're under 18, you're still capable of signing it if you understand it. Mm. So, And the process of putting up a petition and, um, well, what was involved in that? How easy or hard was it? And is there a figure of, of um, signatories that you're looking for that usually makes a difference or is there anything you're aiming for in terms of numbers? In terms of the process, I only learned about that last week Mm. and it was actually quite a simple process. The parliamentary e-petition site's very, um, very good. It explains what to do. Um, A petitioner needs to have the sponsorship of either a member of parliament or the clerk of the court. Um, I sought the clerk of the court's sponsorship and got that without any uh, issue whatsoever. 
that was just done administratively. <coughs> um, you tells you you've got 250 words or less to, to state your case. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm 249 words, so I used every single one of my words. There's a form that you uh, have to fill out, um, attach the bulk of your words, scan, send back to Parliament, and within about an hour and a bit of of doing that, it was live. Right. So it was quite quite easy. I was the first person to sign it uh, Mm -hmm. as the petitioner. I need to sign it to... To um, you know, to support my own petition, obviously. Mm. Um, in terms of of numbers, um, I have no number in mind. I mean, it's interesting having a look through the current petitions as well as closed petitions. You can see the numbers of people who have signed them, and look, there's anywhere from forty people to six thousand people mm. signing various petitions. Um, I looked at one that's current at the moment. It's about puppy farms. It's got about 1,600 signatories. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to have thousands mm-hmm. of uh, signatures. Um, you know, we've done well in four days to get over 1,000, but I would, I would love to double, triple, quadruple that. So people listening, I would love you to sign my petition if you agree with it, have a look and see what you think. If they're listening to this podcast, I, I'd hope they'd agree. So, yeah, yeah chances are good. So hopefully Thanks. we can send a few your way. I'll be signing it tomorrow. Oh, yeah. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, moving across to chaplaincy, anything interesting happening on that side of things? Look, there's been some very interesting things happened lately on chaplaincy. Um, the ACT government um a couple of months ago announced that they would withdraw from the federal chaplaincy program they don't have a lot of chaplains in acd public schools i think there's 22 uh, obviously it's just a small area um but because they do have secular in their act they've decided the government has decided that uh having chaplains who have to be religious to get a role in a state school is inconsistent with the secular requirement of their education act so the education minister announced a little while ago that they would be withdrawing from that federal funding um, and there'll be no more chaplains in the schools but what they propose to do is that those existing chaplains the department will offer them jobs as secular workers. Mm. Uh, they won't. Well, they'll no longer be employed by Scripture Union, uh, which is the employer of most chaplains in this the AC in the ACT. Um, they will be employed directly by the department. In any other way, a secular youth worker or teacher will would be employed, uh, and that will be up. And obviously, they won't be allowed to to spruik their religion in schools. Um, they're there as a secular worker for, for all children and not to promote their own religion. So it will be up to those individual current chaplains whether they accept that offer or say, well, no, I was in schools as part of Christian ministry, I'm, I'm not going to stay. what sort of skills they'd have to offer apart from spruiking their religion? The minimum requirement for, chap- for a chaplain is a TAFE certificate. Um, of course, you've got people with all sorts of qualifications, um, some to do with education, many not to do with education. 
Um, when I can remember from a couple of years ago, the figures were roughly something like the government was paying $50 an hour for chaplains, but of that money, about $16 found its way to the actual chaplain and $34 was uh, in the administrative pocket of the of the sort of scripture union or whatever group was, was providing the, the chaplain. So mm-hmm. did you ever hear anything like that? Well, the service fees of a chaplain um, by Scripture Union Queensland, which is the largest chaplaincy provider in Australia, they do Queensland and they also do ACT, um, they've got a, a range starting in the high 30s up to about $50 an hour. So that's what they charge for their chaplain. As to what their chaplain actually gets paid, I don't know. Mm. But they um, they certainly take a, a um, percentage of that federal funding yeah. and a and a percentage of, of fundraising. I mean, all all organisations have administration fees, but um, the Scripture Union is around twenty percent. The other annoying thing I can remember the story I heard was, well, in this in the schools they've got their chappy, and there's often fundraising events where money goes to the chappy, like sort of gold coin sort of donations or events um, to where the school actively sort of does fundraising to provide more hours for the, for the chappy. That's right. Well, the federal yeah. fundraising, uh, the, the federal funding, sorry, is um, a smidge over 20000 It's gone up a bit with some indexation this year. I think it's $20,280, but don't quote me on that. Um, so that's what, so schools that are successful in getting federal funding, and not all are, um, that is the that will pay depending on what the service fee of the chaplaincy provider is roughly about one and a half days um, mm. of a chaplain's time. So if the chaplain is to be in a school more than one and a half days out of a five day school week, then that money the rest of that money has to come from somewhere else. And there's usually two ways that that's raised. There's the in-school fundraising where they might have a, a gold coin donation day for the chappy. They might have um, a disco run by the chappy where funds are raised and that money goes. They might even have pizza. So the, the class that gets the most most gold coins gets a free pizza. Mm. Um, but, it, you know, so it can range from, range from some pocket change fundraising to quite significant. Mm. Um, plenty of PNCs choose to donate money mm. to the to their chaplain to purchase more hours. Um, the other way of fundraising is by the local chaplaincy committees that can be that um, often support the chaplaincy. Now they're usually comprised of church representatives um, that you know raise money amongst their own church members mm. to purchase more hours for the for the chaplain. So they're the, the two internal and external ways of, of raising yeah. funds. I can remember being at a meeting where one of your members was describing how you could be at a PNC meeting and it's really awkward to argue that the chappy, you know, we shouldn't be fundraising or giving money to the chappy. And the chappy would be in the meeting and mm. you'd be having to say, well, you know, I want to have this discussion but I don't think the chappy should be here while we're discussing how much money we're going to give the chappy. And yeah. Very I mean, it's awkward very awkward sort of social situations and, yeah. and 
there's this goodwill to the good old chappie and mm. you're seen as... Especially if they've been there for a long time. Yeah, you're seen as being quite mean if mm. you were to suggest that you don't think it's a good idea to pay money to the chaplain. Mm. Mm. I mean, it is difficult because um, it's about the the chaplaincy program and uh, rather than individual chaplains. Mm. Um, and look, I think, you know, they have a tough time of it they've got in in some ways in that they've got to lead fundraising for their own job i mean how many how many people that are employed have to make up find ways to fundraise for their own wage mm. um so it is a, a big ask for them mm. um and i don't think that's very very fair mm. now i won't get you to comment on this because you have to stay diplomatic but dear listener the deputy leader of the opposition in Queensland is Tim Mander, former CEO of Scripta Union. So, I, Alison, don't say anything, but I suspect it might be difficult to get changes made if there's a change of government uh, at the next election. We'll wait and see. Thank you. Would, yeah. would chaplain, chaplaincy is actually um, funded by the federal government. Yeah, that's true. That's and true. Had yes. you know, had our <clears throat> election outcome been different, and we had a, a Labor majority government, mm. they had they had a policy that they were going to open the chaplaincy funding to secular workers, mm. which is what Julia Gillard did when she was prime minister. Mm. Um, so schools could choose a religious chaplain or a secular worker who, of course, may well be religious themselves, like a maths teacher or an English teacher, but they're not employed on the mm. basis of religion. I, I don't think a new LNP government would be following the ACT road, though, simply no. giving up on the money and uh, cancelling the, the program and changing it to a secular one. Yeah. No. Um. Look, there, there also is another interesting thing about chaplains, the... Um, Victorian, there was a Vic, Victorian decision in VCAT, their Civil and Administration Tribunal, um, not that long ago, where a non religious, highly qualified youth worker um, went to uh, ask Access Ministries, the chaplaincy provider in Victoria, for a job working in state schools. And they rejected her on the basis that she wasn't religious. And um, she believed that that was discrimination and brought a, a case in the VCAT and it was settled and the result of that settlement has been that the Department of Education in Victoria has changed their job description of a chaplain to person of faith or no faith. Right, but wasn't the funding by the federal government on the basis that it was to a faith organisation only. It was. So we've got an interesting situation now where the the uh, state government's guidelines on the chaplaincy role are in conflict with the federal government chaplaincy agreement that they're signed up to. So it's a work in progress as uh, to what's okay. going to happen there, but definitely a spanner in the works. And the legislation on which that anti-discrimination case was was made is nearly identical in terms of employment discrimination as Queensland's Anti-Discrimination Act. Right. So that equally applies to Queensland. Right. Okay. Mm. So we need to find a secular Queensland chaplain willing to go through the process as well. Perhaps we do. Mm. Um, but the federal government's going to have to have to deal with it. 
Mm. Um, and the other interesting thing, and this this actually ties religious instruction and chaplaincy together in a nice little box with a bow for you, Trevor. Mm. Um, the uh, Australian Taxation Office is investigating a complaint made about the way in which uh, Scripture Union Queensland gives tax-deductible donations to people who donate to chaplaincy. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a chaplain in your school and you want to you wanted to, to donate to them to, to buy more hours for them, yes. you can go onto Scripture Union's website, select the school, so um, XYZ State School Chaplaincy Program, click on it, donate to it, and you'll be given a tax-deductible receipt that you can use in your tax return. Now, the issue is, is that the category under the Tax Act that the donations are being made, the don- those donations are being paid to the school's ministry fund of Scripture Union and the school's ministry, ministries fund has been granted um, gift, deductible gift recipient status by the Australian Taxation Office um, on a very specific condition and that condition is that it's solely f- that the donation is solely for the purpose of providing religious instruction mm-hmm. in Australian government schools. Now, the problem is, is chaplains are prohibited under Department of Education policy in Queensland from providing religious instruction. Yep, so it's not a charitable purpose because... They're not allowed to proselytise, yeah. Well, Mm. that's right. Mm. So um, it was reported um, in a Guardian newspaper article that Paul Karp wrote that when he asked the Scripture Union CEO, Peter James, you know, what have you got to say about this um, situation about religious instruction and, and how how you're giving donations um, to chaplaincy, a tax-deductible receipt, um, it was quoted that um, Peter James's response, well, well, chaplaincy is explicitly religious. Right, yeah. Employment. Not that that means mm. it's religious instruction, but mm. it's explicitly religious. So Okay, well, might be some pressure from the tax office. So that's mm. also um, very interesting, but over the... Over the last um, few years, the um, you can see the money that's gone into that school's ministry fund from donations to chaplains by looking at their financials, which are available on the National Charities Commission site, and there's been tens of millions of dollars. Right. All with right. the potential to have been given ah. um, tax-deductible receipts. Right. Now, who knows how many of that actually... Tens of millions of dollars has been donated by people people to the chaplaincy program. Mm. Wow. Yes. What we could do with just a fraction of that in the secular world would be just marvellous, wouldn't it? Like, goodness Mm. me, they've got so much power in terms of the money they've got access to. Yeah. So chaplaincy's got a few thorns in its side at the moment Mm. and will be very interesting to see how they all play out. Mm. So your organisation, Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools, um, do you need help? Do you need the court? You don't really need members as such. You're more just a small lobby group. Is that right? Tell me about your group in that sense. Look, we're nothing fancy. Yeah. We're a bunch of parents with a Facebook page and a, and a website, um, a lot of enthusiasm. 
Mm. Um, we are stakeholders with the Department of Education in relation to religious instruction. We were granted that status um, a couple of years ago. So um, they obviously found us to be a fairly reasonable, um, literate group of parents. Um, we, we've got about 1,800 Facebook followers. Um, we're sure there's a lot of people that also look that haven't actually liked our page. Um, a lot of RI providers perhaps like to keep an eye on us. Mm. That's fine. We're mm. very open about, um, you know, what we, what we do. So that's that's it really. We're nothing fancy. We have no major lobby, you know, lobby groups or giant corporations behind us. I think we've got 45 bucks in in the tin at the mm. moment on you know, from money we've we've put in to the churches buy will be relieved to hear that you pull. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, but we've got a lot of enthusiasm and we've mm. got a lot of you know, we're parents from all over the place. Mm. Um, and, you know, we've got a lot of teachers who support us, teachers who have to, you know, put down their whiteboard marker and stand aside because the religious instruction person has come over to commandeer their classroom and take up their valuable teaching time. I mean, again, what what other um, employee has that happened to them mm. in in their workplace, in a secular work, well, mm. in a public school anyway? Um, it's So we encourage people to like our Facebook page, Keep in the loop, support us, um, and but the main thing at the moment is is sign our petition, share it, talk about it, try and get as as much support on getting that review, and then because once a review happens, that's when you know, the parliamentary education committee really um, turn over all those stones and have a look at what's been going on in religious instruction. Um, there's a whole lot of problems that we've found. It's Religious instruction is like a can of worms. Mm. We've opened it, the worms have all come out, and we every time you poke it, there's more. Right. None of those problems are ever going to go away. You want people to send in their horror stories if they've got one? Absolutely. And, right. look, we do hear from, from parents um, regularly, um, private message our page, mm. uh, tell us what, what problems are. We help parents navigate what's going on in their schools. Um, we ask them what it is the school's information has given them. Uh, we show them if that is sufficient or if they need to be asking for more. We will even write to a principal on behalf of a parent, if even if that parent doesn't want to be named, saying we've been contacted by a parent at your school, they're concerned about this. And it can be anything from a lack of information to, you know, their child is not being separately supervised in a separate location out of earshot of the RIs required by policy. Mm. And uh, we will also write to the department um if we if we know of any breaches and and we have a parent who's you know given us the okay to do that we we won't name the parent um but we will give the name of the school and that one of the things we did discuss in our meeting yesterday was the department reassuring us that keep they want us to keep doing that keep telling them about breaches and and they will contact the school mm -hmm. and hopefully sort them out there's a few recalcitrant principals out there that seem to run RI other than the ways in which they should. Mm. So we're coming for them. Mm. 
Very good. Well, you're doing what I've been suggesting for ages in, in the sense that you're lobbying or you're sort of, you're, you're talking direct to the politicians, it seems to me, and, and trying to convince them. So, um, I don't know, in the sort of secular atheist world, there's a lot of memes get passed around and a lot of articles get, that get read by fellow sort of rationalists and secularists and whatever, but face-to-face meetings with the actual people making the decisions is just invaluable, I think. So mm. what you're doing in the National Secular Lobby and actually face-to-face meetings with politicians is the way to go, I think. Yeah, I think so. I mean, mm. that's that's where change is going to come from. Mm. Um, but, you know, we do need um, parents and and any Queenslanders to stand up and say, well, you know, state schools belong to all of us as Queenslanders. Um, you know, what do we want to see happen in them? Do we want to see children continue to be divided along religious lines or do we want them educated together? Mm. Um, and I think that that's, um, that's the way forward. Mm. Now, I'm working on a little project. I sent you an email about You might not have had a chance to look at it yet, but I'm trying to get the the free-thinking world of Australia to just cooperate and... It's difficult. Yes, and just to at <laughs> least agree to have a little email network amongst the various organisations. The idea being that somebody like you who's doing this petition can can contact everybody else in the network with a simple email to say, hey, I'm doing this petition, could you consider promoting this to your group? Mm. And... Um, and having a sort of an up-to-date database of all of the various free-thinking organisations and so that it's easy for us to communicate and publicise what we're doing. So, because I was thinking of you with your petition and I was aware of it, but I thought there'll be lots of people who aren't aware of it who oh, should absolutely. be. So, um, so anyway, uh, you'll hear more about that down the mm. track. Uh, there was an email sitting in your inbox. No, I have uh, read okay. it, Trevor. And yes, no, I did. Is this, does it sound a reasonable It suggestion? does sound a very reasonable okay, suggestion. Good. For sure. The other thing we're going to do is on the 23rd of June, mm-hmm. we're having a little um, drinks at Newstead at a brewery and it's for people who support the podcast, but it's also open to anyone in the secular world, whether you're a rationalist, humanist, sceptic, atheist, Queensland parent for secular state schools, if you've bemoaned what happened in the last election or, or the fate of the world or you just want to talk about religion and have a, a chat to a like-minded person, um, there'll be a link on the show notes or on our website or our Facebook page and uh, you're welcome to join us for a few beers and just chat with some like-minded people at Newstead in Brisbane on the 23rd. So. And Land and Hardbottom will be there. Yes. And um, <laughs> and I haven't invited him yet, but some people like Hugh Harris might turn up or other people like that. So just so we can have face-to-face communication and help us all cooperate a bit more. Sounds mm. like a plan. Right. Now, dear listener, if this is the first time you've listened to this podcast, we normally run through a whole bunch of different topics of current affairs, things going on in the world, not necessarily on on secularism and religion, sometimes just on news and politics and um, stuff like that. So we will probably rattle on with a few of those. And Alison, you're welcome to go home or you're welcome to stay with us. I mean, you've got a young family. Do you want to go? And we'll just stop. Or what do you? What would you Keep like to Keep going. Right. Who knows? I might have my two cents worth. Okay. Well, that's good because 
the first couple of items I wanted to talk about, I don't think I gave the guys any warnings about this, but um, down in New South Wales, Gladys Berejiklian has decided to establish a new selective school in Sydney's southwest. And so selective schools, these seem to be schools where rather than just taking anybody in the district that is surrounding the school, they actually um, test them or they, 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 they only take students who are high achievers in various disciplines. It might be sport, it might be academic stuff. So, um, so selective schools have sort of crept into the New South Wales system. And I came across an article which said that in New South Wales um, – Wealthy migrant and Anglo families are self-segregating when they choose schools. The migrants are shunning private schools in favour of the selective system and the Anglo families are doing the opposite, a researcher says. So in New South Wales, um, okay, we've got a term here called LBOTE, so uh, language background other than English. Um, in New South Wales, 83% of students in fully selective schools come from language backgrounds other than English. It's 83%. Do you have a figure on how many of these selective schools there are, Trevor? And, and I might add they've been in the New South Wales system for decades. Yes, but uh, just let me finish this other stat, is that more than half of the 99 schools with fewer than 10% LBOTE students were private and in wealthy areas. So... There's a sort of a huge self-segregation um, thing happening mm. with those schools. Got any opinions on it the seems I went to one. Yes. And, well, are you speaking favourably of it or yeah, of them? Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Well, it, it, it was a, a, an academic school mm. and um, in uh, grade six I had a – there was a family in my – my immediate neighbourhood who who had sent a kid there and we got good reports about it. So I applied to go and I ended up there. And um, it was a, uh, a single-sex school at that time. You know, that's going back to the sort of, you know, late 19th century, of course, when I was in high school. And um, <laughs> now it's a, uh, a co-ed school. And I... My my mother used to send me newspaper cuttings about it years, for years and years because she was so chuffed that I'd been to it. it. It's actually the top performing academic school in New South Wales, has been for decades. But um, apparently there are a lot of um, kids from ethnic Chinese families attending and a lot of them are very high performers academically. Mm. But of course, we have them in Queensland too, Trevor. Do we? Yes. yes. State High would be a selective well, school. A, so we have partially selective schools like mm. State High, uh, Kelvin Grove, with their schools of excellence. Mm. Um, yes. But then we have fully selective um, schools, the Queensland Academies. Yes. Yep. Which I think are 10, 11, and 12. Yes. I think. Yep. Personally, I think um, they're damaging to our society. Why? Because you're uh, you're segregating the high academic achievers into um, select schools, and the community in the ordinary districts is not having the benefit of of the sort of the role model of these high academic achievers. So 
it's also then putting pressure on those schools if if they're not having the high academic achievers. They don't I, actually get all the high achievers from every district, you know. I mean, there's a, there's a well, a, a fully selective way. school does, like the one you were talking about, the academy. Mm. Um, now, what I mean is, you, you you won't get a you know a sort of a brain drain from every district of kids flocking to these selective schools, because they're voluntary. It's only kid you know families who want to send their kids there, and they're. Mm. They're very selective in terms of who they take. So you'll still get smart kids at all the local schools. Well, well but you're necessarily going to have less because there's going to be a brain drain. It'll only from... be a handful from each area, Trevor. Well, it's literally it's, only it's a still an effect. I don't have a problem with it because yeah. you've got this situation where you've got kids that are exceptional Mm. who aren't really looked on favourably or anything like that in an ordinary school. Not and, necessarily. Well, I honestly believe that, you know. <laughs> it, it, it's you, When you look, you know, I've got siblings who are teachers and they talk about the kids and that sort of stuff that they have taught. And my sister taught at Woodridge High and she said she, was, she knew there were kids there that were a hell of a lot smarter than what they were letting on, but they weren't excelling because they were worried about being picked on and that sort of thing. Mm. I honestly believe if you had a school that was selective out in that area that would say, hey, if you're brilliant, come to us, mm. then I think you'd end up with you. So up it with allows kids. those kids to blossom. Exactly. Sense, you know, yeah. Well, well and, they're just leaving. reach their full potential. But then you're just saying there's no hope for the kids in the, in the ordinary no, school. When, when you're saying a kid can't <laughs> blossom in an ordinary school, isn't the solution – to fix the ordinary school so that the kid can blossom because, again, in our, I mean, my whole thing with I the religious angle is segregating our kids because they're Catholic or Protestant and, or Muslim or Jewish for 12 years and then as adults they suddenly are confronted with each other and we wonder why they don't like each other. But, you know, we need our community to mix and match and, you know, it's going to be for the benefit of those smart kids mm. to be actually mixing with kids who are not so smart and to recognise, well, not everybody gets this as easily as I do. I'm privileged. Like th there's benefits all around, but just segregating people into slots like that is to me not a good idea. I don't have a problem with it. I, it's just I think the <laughs> – See what happens, Alison? I find yeah. myself up against these two the, the whole time. All right, maybe The overall <laughs> effect is negligible, Trevor. The number of kids from each district is, is very, very low. I think you won't really notice much, much effect. Shall I give my two cents? Yes. Okay. I, I think that our public schools should be adequately funded to look after the educational needs of children at all levels yeah. and that if that was the case, we wouldn't need selective schools to let those brighter kids blossom. There we go. Okay, it's good. I'm glad. I'm glad we brought you along, Al. No, I honestly just think that you are living in a fairy world if you think that you're going to have all these bright kids and that sort of stuff in every school that they're going to be allowed to blossom because the other kids, there are some mongrel children out there who will who will keep pulling them back. You know, it, it's not pretty. You're saying the state of our public schools is so bad that smart kids should leave. Exactly. That's what you're saying. That's, That's exactly what I'm and, saying. That's why and, I said we need to be well-funded. 
Well, I, I obviously think, we I think, we agree with. That. I agree with that. You've got it. You've got to improve the funding and that sort of stuff in the schools. But I've got mm. two siblings that are that are both teachers, yeah. and they have they have said that you know you've got this situation that you get this state schools and that sort of stuff mm. where you've got bright kids who deliberately hold themselves back. Mm. And it's well, no better at the private school I went to. It was shocking too. It was bloody awful the way smart people were treated by the others. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was shit ass. Yeah, it's a different world now though. Like in your day to be openly gay at school was a big problem. Well, yeah, no but doubt. I wasn't openly gay at school. Yeah. Exactly. It was only when I but, – But I would have said that today people are far more accepting of, of that than they were when we went to school. Like it may not be perfect, but certainly it's a lot different. I mean, it's a lot the, different. But I, honestly, it was I, inconceivable that there would be sort of a same-sex couple at a school formal when I went to school. Yeah, exactly. But it does happen now. And, it does happen now. And, I understand and, that, but that's that's one thing that has moved on. I can't see the academic thing moving on. Oh, look, I, I couldn't see it moving on because it was so bad at where I was went to school. And I just thought and that was at a private school. That was at a private school. So, ladies and gentlemen, don't bother spending your money. <laughs> don't bother spending your money. Send your kids to a local good state school. <laughs> you know. Well, can um, I can I say that the the academic school that I attended in Sydney mm-hmm. out outperformed every school in the state. Well, of course they would, including they including the private schools. Of course they would. They were selective on academic. But it was a public merit. school. Yeah, but yeah. if you're going to select on merit, of course you're going to outperform. It'd be a crime if you didn't because you've just said, we'll take all the smart kids, thank you very much. Mm. And, and in the private school system, we'll take all the rich kids. You know, mm. um, and by the way it works with socio- socioeconomic factors, yeah. and there'll be a slight increase of... Of the brighter kids, yeah. so but look, it, so it was a public school, to. and so it, it it received it's, public school it, it, funding, and yet it still outperformed. But it's nothing to be proud schools. of if you've if you've set up a rule that says we only take the smart kids to suddenly go. Oh, look at that, we got great results compared to everybody else. I mean, what what a what, shock! Look at all yeah. those high distinctions. Who yeah. would have thought? Yeah. So, right. Um, uh, yes, please. Scott's Look, just having said it. that, I agree with Alison, and and we've all, I mean, we've always agreed that public schooling should be properly resourced yeah. to make public schools so good that nobody would bother yeah. sending their kids to a private. school. And I think that I think the selective school system just gives up on that as an option and just says, "Oh, clearly we can't do it." And here's mm. a here's another solution. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm totally public school educated. Yes. Um, my kids were, and they had great uh, the Gap High and mm. Kelvin Grove High. Mm. So, um, so yeah, I had a great experience. Um, so yeah, yeah. My my kids went to Brisbane State High, mm. all public school educated. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Right, new topic: Australian Federal Police raiding the media organisations. Anybody got any firm opinions about this? Scary. It was mm. very scary, yeah. And um, Barry, what's his name? The bloke that's just given up insiders, Barry Cassidy. Barry Cassidy. Now he's not a man that he's not a man that loses his mind all that often. But what he said actually really did prick my ears up. Where he said we are dangerously close to a police state, you know, with this thing happening. 
And I honestly believe that if a man like that says something like that, then it's time for us all to listen, Mm. you know. And I cannot understand (sighs) if the federal police were acting on their own, which I don't believe they were. I think that Dutton was probably pulling their strings. Mm. I can't believe that they would actually do that if they were just acting on their own. I think that Dutton probably told them to go and do it, but we'll have to wait and see. I think that the government has bitten off more than they can chew now where the public reaction to this has been one of horror, I think. The intelligentsia, yes. Yeah, absolutely. But but the general public, I wonder. Well, The The average Joe in the street wander down Queen Street Mall and say, what do you reckon those AFP raids? Do you reckon? probably half of them wouldn't know whether it happened. That's my point. Yeah. That's my point. I, I just wonder how much the average Joe cares. Like if, it, if there was an election again next month, that no, particular issue, exactly wouldn't, they no. wouldn't care two hoots about it. No, he's probably people, right. Because it doesn't affect them. Yeah. So, look, um, News Corp and the ABC were both, you know, producing stories based on leaked documents uh, and everybody's outraged at their treatment. How's that different to Julian Assange? Like, he was producing leaked documents and he's been attacked by an Orwellian-style police force move on him. Yeah, where, mean, where were all the people, you know, the same people who are outraged now at what's happened to News Corp and the ABC, I think were they also outraged at what was happening to Julian Assange? Yeah, I think they probably were. I, but Julian I, Assange... I don't is very, know that they were. Well, Julian Assange is a very complicated case because he was accused of rape. And he didn't want to face. He didn't want to go back to. He didn't want to face the prosecutors in Sweden because yep. he thought that the Swedes would deport him to America, which yep. was ridiculous because the Swedes don't deport you to America if you're facing the death penalty, which is one of the things he was concerned about. And he was free to walk the streets of London when they could have just picked him up and deported him the next day. However, they didn't. But the point is, he exposed. Uh, Absolutely, what, what he military did. forces were doing exactly, and uh, I had and no problem with any of that. I think that was really? entirely right. Oh, I don't and, have a problem with and that. And this is what the ABC report was yeah. doing: was exposing potentially poor behaviour by Australian SAS soldiers. I just have the feeling that there's a lot more outrage and sympathy for the ABC than there was for Julian Assange. Some people, Assange. Julian Some people Assange. would say that there was a difference, and that the 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 journalists in the Australian case were you know, professional journalists who would take leaked information, assess it, try to verify it and check it as far as they could and then publish what they thought was a responsible report. Whereas Julian Assange, according to reports, just took leaked information and just dumped, dumped it. Dumped it online. A lot of what he did, though. Potentially put a lot of people's lives a, at risk. A lot of what he did was the exact same situation that we're talking about here with the ABC. When a you lot, say of, what a lot of what he did, but yes. he did in fact dump, you know, classified American security information, uh, which they claimed put a lot of people. And and in fact, there were reports mm. that people were did actually disappear. You know, mm. people that were potentially, you know, perhaps <laughs> covert operatives in whatever you know foreign state, mm. and, and that they actually disappeared. That they mm. were probably killed. As a result. Well, after that... It doesn't sort of, sound very responsible no, to me. after that sort of thing started to happen, what they did was they had, you know, you get a knock on the door. If you, if you were an interpreter working for the uh, American Army, 
in Afghanistan, mm. they'd knock on your door in the middle of the night and say, right, your, your wife and your kids are going to the States, you're coming with us and you're going to live with us from now on until you until you know your year's up and that sort of stuff then you can go back and join your family in the states you know because of that whole leak and i think that if you look at the way edward snowden handled his leaks as opposed to the way julian assange handled his leaks mm. edward snowden went to the responsible press i think he went to the guardian was it couldn't remember he went to the Guardian, I believe it was, and he said to them, he says, this is the information that you've got. I want you to go through it and that sort of stuff. I want you to look at it and then just publish everything that can't harm our forces. Mm. That was a very responsible way for him to leak and that sort of thing. Yeah. Julian Assange, however, just dumped everything on the open market and just put it out there and said, right, you know, yeah, yeah let, let the chips fall. So, so let's come up with a general rule that the, uh, the media should be able to release – um, evidence of yeah. government wrongdoing Absolutely. if it's in the public interest. Absolutely. But that should stop short of something that breaches national security. No, it stops short of I don't think it should stop short of that. But if you've got a situation where this – where you've got a list well, well, of agents, which was done with Assange, where he he just dumped this list of agents on the open mm. internet market and said, well, here's the guys that are working in Afghanistan. You know, these guys had been picked up from the middle of the night and it dumped to the US. It wasn't just Afghanistan. It no, was it was all over the world, yeah. Everywhere. So obviously there, there were a lot of people in a lot of countries who were put in jeopardy. Yeah, but I'm trying to just get a general rule happening here. Yeah, we're saying it's to, very but, hard so, to get your general rule on this situation. Yeah, You've got to look, you've got that's, to look that's at That's why it. we're on the big bucks. Because <laughs> that's what we're going to do. So as a general rule, if there's going to be a leak, we're going to say, and it's going to be published, then there has to be an assessment, is this in the public interest? Yes. And the government will say, well, there's a problem. It's breaching our national security. Yeah, I know. And the, the, the difficulty is that we're faced with at the moment is, of course, the government is going to say it's against our national interest because they want to hide stuff. All governments want to hide stuff. And, and they're just saying, well, uh, we've looked at it and it's against national interest, so you can't publish it. And there's nobody independent who can, which is what we need, is to say independently assess something and say, well, that's I it's either in the public no, interest I mean, or I don't it's think true. It's think happened before. The Pentagon Papers in the United States, the, the American government was tried very hard to stop that being published and they didn't, they didn't stop it. But, you know, it didn't put people's lives directly in, in jeopardy, did it? No, because the journalists went through those papers. Yeah. They went through them and, and, they, stuff published and they published the selectively part, selectively from the papers so that we were responsible. They exposed, you know, government wrongdoing without putting people directly in, in harm's way. Yeah. So you're saying it's legitimate for the government to say no in certain circumstances. No, I'm saying it's no. not legitimate for people just to holus bolus dump information on, on the internet and, and say, ha-ha, America. Is there any case where the government could say, no, that's, uh, that sh information should not be released because it's... it's if you've got security. a situation where, where they want to release the name and ages and addresses of all the agents around the world, then no, that shouldn't happen. And most yeah. responsible journalists would Wouldn't know do it. where to draw the line. Yeah. 
Whereas Julian but Assange the is, apparently didn't know where well, to draw But here's the line. my point is, how do we have a system where we can sort this out? Because we, we can't give an sense. open check to, uh, an open sort of gate to leakers and say, leak whatever you like, because clearly you're saying that's not the case. It's well, where do we draw the line? They can leak it to whoever they want. It's up to the publisher of that document to actually go through it and that sort of stuff and say, well, actually I can release a, B, and C, but not D, F, and F, and I'm going to release H as well. Because there might be other information that doesn't put an individual in jeopardy, yeah, but it's still against our national interest. We've had leaks in Australia. Be- because you know, it the- reveals something that we don't want somebody to know. Yeah, but I think that those are the, that is the exact point, that you've got to be able to say, well, no, that's what's going to be hold the government to account. The government's yes. got to be able to put up with leaks and that sort of stuff that they find embarrassing or politically right. uh, politically damaging to them. There was that case <laughs> with East Timor where the, the Australian <laughs> government was negotiating for the oil and gas in the Timor Sea. Yeah, we were bugging the, we were bugging yeah, the president. I mean, yeah. the, the Australian government was ext- put in an extremely embarrassing situation and, and they deserve it and deservedly so, but nobody personally you know, suffered as a result. They didn't name the agent That's who right. had placed the bug, whereas exactly. Julian Assange And there is a difference. The There's an important difference. Yeah. Just to be clear, I'm, I'm more than happy to agree with you that News Corp <laughs> and ABC should not be threatened in this way by the government and they should be releasing this information. But I also can accept that there will be odd situations where... Um, there's a balancing between what is a legitimate national security interest. The problem is at the moment it's the government who decides whether they think it is a national security mm. problem or not, and invariably they say it will because they just like covering up mistakes. So mm. some people have suggested, Alison, that a Bill of Rights would somehow solve all this, and I think you're in favour of a Bill of Rights from, I think, previous Facebook posts I've seen. Is that right? Well, certainly in favour of the new Queensland Human Rights Act. Right. Um, I yep. took my daughter out of school mm. and we went and watched Parliament pass it not mm. long ago. Mm. So definitely in favour of a, a Bill of Rights. Mm. But that's not really a Bill of Rights, is it? No. Well, mm. similar. There, mm. are, there are lots of, not, lots of similar aspects. Mm. You've heard my argument that invariably these things are vague, the conflict of rights, and, mm. and I'm... They're I'm reluctant. Easy. I'm reluctant to leave it up to judges mm. to make these decisions because they can make some pretty bad decisions. That's why you've that's, got to have it the way the Queensland government's done it, where it's set up in legislation so that it can be repealed if you find that your courts are yes. clogged with it. But, but it's yes. not really a bill of rights, then. You know? No, it's no. not a bill no. of rights. But you've got a you've as got opposed a to a constitutional. To, a, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Constitutional mm. Bill of Rights, I am dead yeah. set against because you've got this ridiculous situation in the United States with yeah. the Second Amendment, but, but, blah, but blah, blah, But you see, blah, people blah. are saying, well, in America, this would never happen to the ABC or News Corp because They've of gonna, yeah, their Bill of Rights. rights. Mm. Yeah. And the answer to that is, well, they got lucky yeah. on that particular mm. aspect right. in their Bill of Rights and they've got really unlucky with things like the right the to right bear balance. arms. <laughs> and the problem is... You're relying on luck, and then you're stuck with it because in our mm. current mm. setup, yeah. it's impossible to change these things. Yeah. Yeah. So I would rather not rely on luck. Me I'd too. Rather- and I would oh. rather rely yeah. on a well-educated populace who are yes. well-informed and who are able to, you know, push for change of legislation where mm. where necessary. Yeah. I agree. Definitely more in favour of it being legislated than mm. constitutional. Yeah. So. This is sort of bringing up um, talk about 
Orwell's 1984. Oh, one of my favourite books. It's, it's a, a great, very it's good a, book. It's yeah. a really good book. It's yeah. a very good it's book. It's been a long time since I've read it. Yeah. I, I need to reread it. Yeah, it's mm. a really good – it's a good read. Like it's a bit like a – this is going to sound strange – bit like a Disney movie in the sense that for kids it's there at one level just as an interesting story mm. but then there's all these other deeper things happening. You know when mm. you watch a Disney movie there's like adult jokes that the kids don't get sort of thing. So, <laughs> yeah. so it, it operates on a number of levels. But um, uh, one thing that I was going to open with but I didn't was that um, – uh, like this current Morrison government just doesn't give a rat's about freedom and um, what we really need is freedom of the press but what we will get is religious, religious privilege mm. dressed up as freedom of religion. Would you and, expect a Prime Minister who doesn't know what secularism means to yeah. really understand what freedom is? Yeah, but it's it's almost that double speak where they're using freedom of religion but they really mean Almost the opposite. Privilege. Yeah. And, and, and it's a privilege bit, of a particular religion. And it's yes. quite Orwellian, isn't it? It's yes. it's the idea that freedom is slavery, mm. uh, war is peace, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, well, I'll just quote a bit here from, uh, from 1984 because they had ministries, um, if you recall, and the Ministry of Peace, which concerned itself with war, and the Ministry of Love, which maintained law and order. And here in Australia in 2019... We have the Ministry of Home Affairs, which concerns itself with home invasions. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. So that was that. Um, oh, well. Da, 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 da. I think you're going to see this. It's going to blow up in Morrison's face. I think when he gets back from overseas, he's going to be answering a lot of questions about this whole thing. Now, I agree with Trevor that it's probably just going to be water off a duck's back for most of the public, but I do believe that those – people that watch this sort of thing, they're going to be very concerned about it. Mm. The other thing about this is um, these raids are really just the third leg of an Orwellian trifecta, in my view. So the first part of the trifecta is the contamination of truth and the rewriting of history, which happened in 1984, where people, you know, Winston's job was to rewrite history at one point there at war with the Eurasians and then they're, at war with the other group and they had to quickly rewrite history. It's a bit like what the and Chinese did with Tiananmen. Exactly what I was mm. going to say. But it's exactly that because we've got the hist- you know, that sort of anniversary of yeah, Tiananmen Just wipe Square. it out of history and it didn't, it didn't happen. Exactly. Mm. Incredibly Orwellian the way mm. that's panned out. And, you know, on the other side of the, of the uh, Pacific with, you know, Fox in America with Fox News and Sky News and the Murdoch Press – you know, they will just come out and say that the sun uh, rises in the west and sets in the east. And, uh, you know, they look at things like the Mueller report and say that, oh, of course, uh, Mueller exonerated the president. He did nothing of the sort, like mm. just complete out-and-out lies. And, and he had to come out and say, state that personally that he yes, didn't exonerate. Exactly. And even mm. after that, they still will claim he said the opposite to mm. what he said. Mm. So that sort of contamination of the truth and rewriting of history is just going on around us all the time. Mm. And the second part of, of that sort of 1984 was um, the control of the working class by dampening their willingness or their capacity to rebel. Like in 1984, people are just so downtrodden and uninformed, they don't know what's going on and they don't have any spare capacity to stop and think about what's going on. They just have to 
cop whatever blows rain down on them. Mm. And, you know, I, 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 it's been a long time since I read it, but didn't they also, that you know, they refer to the common people as the proles. Yes. From proletariat, of course. Yes. But didn't they also allow the proles a certain sort of uh, amount of liberty in their you know, sort of sex lives and things like that, that the more educated bureaucratic classes weren't permitted? Yes. Is that right? That's true, just to keep themselves entertained. If that kept them without thinking about the larger sort of difficulties they were facing, if it was a cheap entertainment, a bit like a reality TV show style cheap entertainment to keep the masses entertained. these fantasy blockbusters that, Mm. you know... That we are served up, that serve no really, you know, that are not intellectually nourishing whatsoever, as far as I can tell. Of course, I'm a bit Mm. biased, but Mm. um, you know what I mean? It's like um, in in the Roman times, you know, give give the commoners circuses, keep them entertained, Mm. and then they'll be less likely to arc up when their their daily lives are pretty harsh. Yeah, Mm. yeah. And then um, the third part of the trifecta is this sort of jack jackboot police service sort of thing that was happening in the book, which is, you know, kind of what we're getting with the AFP raid. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of um, stuff happening in that book that you can look at today and think, mm-hmm. yeah, it's uncomfortably <laughs> close to... 1984 yeah. used to be on the reading list uh, for senior high school in, in mm-hmm. Queensland. I don't know if it still is. That's where I read it first I read time. it in 1984, in my <laughs> last you? year of yeah. high school. There you wow. go, yeah. Okay. I read it in nineteen eighty nine in grade eleven. I read it in nineteen twenty four as a fifteen year old. <laughs> Just borrowed it from the school library. It looked interesting, so gave it back. Uh, what you were a lawyer, Alison? What what law did you practice? Succession law. Succession law. Wills right. and estates, right. powers of attorney. Right. Okay. Mm. I got a question here from Watley who says, Monsieur Fist. Liability and litigation have weakened organisational abilities to achieve their purposes, having to cover their asses before being able to provide. As a lawyer, can you explain how this has gotten so out of hand? Surely restricting the ability or freedoms of an individual in the name of liability and insurance concerns also limits the outcome of any endeavour on the part of that individual and shapes the result accordingly. Can we have a discussion about that? So basically, liability and litigation... um, constraining what we're doing and well i didn't practice personal injuries law no, i had a partner me who, neither i had a partner who did and he did a lot of workplace sort of um stuff and basically it was really important what judge you got on the day and mm. certain judges just had reputations for being easy and what we i think what happens is that the judges look at a situation of somebody who's slipped on a grape in a Woolworths and has got significant injuries worth, you know, that really are causing them enormous problems and they need a lot of money. And the judge also knows that there's an insurance company involved. Mm. And it's human nature for that judge to think, if I can just find negligence here, I know that the insurance company will be paying this figure and that poor person over there will be collecting and their life will have some sort of easier road. And and basically it seemed to me that uh, it's the case of judges understanding that there's an insurance policy 
lurking there to pay that makes them willing to sort of stretch and find liability where that otherwise may not have been the case. That would be my... And if they lame. thought there was no insurance policy... Oh, they might have been a bit, t- bit, bit tougher, but, you mm. know, in most of these cases you just know that there is. But you're right, mm. in other cases there may not have been, but there's, there's, it, it, more often than not there's some sort of insurance policy. So I think that's one of the reasons why negligence is found That would flow on into insurance premiums, of course. Yeah, of course. Mm. Yeah, so human nature. And, of course, they look at, you know, liability of the injured person as well, what sort of contributory negligence they had to their predicament and mm. and whether there's an insurer or not might affect that that balance between different liabilities as well yep instead of being 50 50 maybe 70 30 because i'm feeling sorry for you maybe mm. so there you go Watley. that's my view on that mm. um look i think we've probably rattled along long enough really yeah unless anybody had anything do you allison did you we get a lot of comments from people saying, love the show, um, don't agree with everything you say, but, you know, enjoying it. Hmm? Seems like people disagree with us Disagree with us on a lot of things. You, you, you disagree That's with okay. us about, about anything or anything in particular? No? Well, I don't think you right. want people to agree with everything you say. No. I mean, the three of you, you don't mm. agree on everything each other says. Yes. Yeah. I mean, um, no, I listen. Mm. I listen to your show and sometimes I go, what the? What are they going on about? <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the, I certainly enjoy the debate, mm-hmm. even if I perhaps don't agree with, you know, your views. But I think most of the time I'm, I'm on the same, the same side of, yep. you know, freedom and secularism and mm. um, fairness. Disagree mm. with Trevor on his bashing of the United States. That'd be right. Right. Yeah. What do you really think of the capitalism argument and the death by capitalism? <laughs> well, it's killing them, isn't it? Right. So mm. Mm. Buy their guns. Yeah. So there we go. They mm. care more, more of their guns than their kids. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. That is... You know, but I don't think that's capitalism's fault. I think it's the fault of the Second Amendment. Okay. Well, yes, yeah. it is, but no, there's... Because we have capitalism but, here and we don't have that same gun problem. No. It's mm. about, you know, the, the gun lobby and money, though, the mm. massive amounts of money that they well, you know, mm. contribute I, I, to politicians is just incredible. Yeah, mm. I, I think if you compare our latest mass shooting up there in Darwin, was it? There were four mm. people killed up mm. there. Mm-hmm. Five, people, five people were injured and four of them died. Very sad. Yeah, it was very sad. But I don't think that four people getting shot in the United States would even break the even news. No, of course not. No. You know, you, you've got to have something like the Pulse nightclub where you've got, mm. I don't know how many people died there, but it was a hell of a lot. 50 mm. people dead or something like yeah. that. Mm. Mm. Right, dear listener. Well, if you've joined us for the first time, please tune in again. And we do this every week where we sit around and discuss things. In two weeks' time, we're going to have another lady here in the studio who is an expert on universal basic income. Oh, really? Yes. Fantastic. She's some sort of university academic who's going to talk about that. Um, So that'll be in two weeks' time. Uh, So another female voice Mm. will be on. Good. So we'll keep working at that. Too many boys in this room. There there is. Definitely (laughs) invite the the women on. Okay. We've been accused of being too blokey. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And we've been accused, well... 
Have we been accused of being too blokey? We have been. You've have been we? very kind and welcoming to me, so. There you go. It's all good tonight. So fear not and um, we'll see what happens. All right, dear listener, thanks for tuning in. Uh, we'll say our goodbyes and talk to you next week. Thank you very much for tuning in. Bye now. See you all. Thanks for having me. I think that allowing for the book being, after all, a parody, something like 1984 could actually happen. This is the direction the world is going in at the present time. In our world, there will be no emotions except fear, rage, triumph and self-abasement. The sex instinct will be eradicated. We shall abolish the orgasm. There will be no loyalty except loyalty to the party. But always there will be the intoxication of power. Always, at every moment, there will be the thrill of victory, the sensation of trampling on an enemy who is helpless. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. The moral to be drawn from this dangerous nightmare situation is a simple one. Don't let it happen. It depends on you. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast so there's different levels ranging from a dollar fifty australian to i think ten dollars and various ones in between it's really what do you think it's worth is it worth a cup of coffee uh is it worth more than that less than that whatever you get out of it because not everybody gets the same maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.